Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open our deaf ears and soften our hard hearts to hear the wonder and the joy that there is in your word. We pray this by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when I use the word gospel in church, it would be normal to have a number of different responses. And this is perfectly natural. So there'll be some people here that when I use the word gospel, haven't a clue what it means. And they're comfortable with this. They've decided it's not a big issue for them. They enjoy coming to church. They meet with people they enjoy. They have a good cup of tea and a chat afterwards. And it's a nice part of their weekly routine. They don't know what the word gospel means and they're okay with that. So that's one group, a small group, but a group that will be in any church. It's great that they're here. Others will say, I don't know what the gospel is, but I'm teachable. I want to find out what it means. And if you could just be a little bit clearer, Douglas, then I'd be a little bit closer. Fair enough. Last week we looked at the gospel as a mystery now solved. And it's a key area of my ministry to make it as plain as possible. So please pray for me. Others have understood the gospel and they can even tell others about the gospel, but they themselves have never been humbled by the gospel. So they sit here Sunday by Sunday and say to themselves, there he goes again, banging on about the gospel. I know all about it. It's about what God has done through Christ to save us from sin and the devil and to give us eternal life. But these people have no buy-in. Years ago, I remember listening to a Christian speaker who shared his testimony. As a young man, him and his friend were smoking dope. And he was, he was discouraged, he was disillusioned. His life was on a downward trajectory and he wanted out. In a very random way, he happened to ask his friend if he knew anything about this Jesus fellow. And to his surprise, not only could his friend tell him about Jesus, but tell him how to become a Christian. In fact, this friend led him through the sinner's prayer. And it turned out that this friend had grown up in a Christian home, been to a Bible-believing church, and he knew the gospel. He could even share it. But he wasn't at all interested in it. He had never been humbled enough to cry out and ask Jesus to be his saviour. And then there are others, when I use the word gospel in, in church, who have been humbled and do see their need for a saviour. They may have come to church at first thinking that they needed a little religion. They needed a little improvement and a better perspective. So why not come to church? But as they have been listening to the sermons and, and reading God's word, they begin to realise, actually, that's what not what I need. I don't need a little religion. I don't just need self-help. What I do need is I need a saviour. And they've let the gospel humble them. During the week I was in Lumsden for a minister's gathering where one of the ministers shared how a woman had approached him out of the blue and said to him, I've been a closet Christian for two years and I need to be baptised. He asked her her story and it turned out that a few years earlier this lady had become growingly more and more despondent about the evil and the chaos that's in the world. And her thinking, she thought, well, if there's great evil, there must be great good. 
So she started looking for the great good and she eventually came to a Bible and started reading it. And as she was reading it, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of her heart. And so over a period of time, she realised she needed a saviour. So she became a Christian but didn't do anything about it until the Holy Spirit prompted her. And so I think the baptism is due in a few weeks and great will be the rejoicing. You see, to believe the gospel is not to put your trust and confidence in yourselves, but to change that and to put it into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus is just not a head thing. It's not even believing that he died on the cross for our sins. It's giving all our confidence to him and taking it off ourselves. Now I say all this, I say there are different responses to the word gospel because Paul knows that as he's writing to the Ephesians, in a similar way, there will be different responses to the gospel that he's been explaining in the previous few chapters. And so Paul wants them to really understand with their head and their heart what the gospel is. It's like, I've explained to you the gospel, now let's make it more real. This is great news for you and I, because no matter where we are in understanding the gospel, we can always, for it to be made more real to us. And so we're going to briefly recap where we are in the letter of Ephesians, and then we're going to see how Paul is going to make the gospel more real to the Ephesians and to us. So Paul starts chapter 3 of Ephesians with a major digression. We saw this last week. In verse 1, he mentions that he's in prison, and as he's in all likelihood dictating, he realises, well, this will be causing the Ephesians great heartache, great concern. And so from verses 2 to 13, he digresses and explains to the Ephesians that it's for the mystery of the gospel and him making it plain that he's in prison and not to worry for him because God is with him. This is why he finishes the digression in Ephesians 3.13 with these words. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. So that's verse 13. He finishes the digression. And then in verse 14, which is going to be the focus from 14 and onwards for today, Paul goes back to his original train of thought. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, it's Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, those words mean that he's referring back to what he was talking about at the end of chapter 2. Now at the end of chapter 2, Paul had explained that before we believed in Jesus, we were strangers and we were alienated. We were alienated to God and God's people. But now, both Jew and Gentile, that's everyone, are joined together in three ways. We're no longer strangers or aliens, but Paul at the end of chapter 2 explains that we are citizens of God's kingdom, children in God's family, and stones in God's temple. So here in the middle of chapter 3, he's basically saying, because you are no longer alienated towards God, because you are citizens of the kingdom, children of God's family, and stones in the temple of the living God, because of all this, I bow my knees in prayer. And that's Paul's trajectory. He's changing shift. He's explained to the Ephesians the gospel and the wonderful benefits, and I talked about this a few weeks ago. He's now praying that this will be embedded, that this will be made real to them, 
that they will understand and live out the gospel in a wonderful, powerful way. Paul prays. You see, Paul's no dry academic. Paul wasn't interested in theological groundstanding or self-promotion. No, first and foremost, Paul had a heart for Jesus and he had a heart for the Ephesians. Remember, for about three years, he had, uh, well, he had church planted, really, and started a church that was flourishing and he'd lived and worked beside those folk. And so he had a heart for those folk. So he earnestly prays. He prays that they may know that they are citizens. He prays that they may know, not just in their head, but in their hearts, that they are dearly loved children of the living God and that they are stones of a temple where they will be worshipping Jesus. So this is what he's praying. And let's go and have a look at some detail of this prayer. And we'll look at three things as we do that. We'll look at who's involved in this prayer, what's the aim of this prayer, and how is this aim accomplished. So who's involved in this prayer from verse 16 and verse 17? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, notice who Paul's praying to. When he uses the personal pronoun he, he's referring to God the Father. But notice that it's the Holy Spirit is the agent. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to get this prayer answered. The Holy Spirit's doing the work. And then, of course, we have Christ as the focus of the prayer. Paul is asking our Heavenly Father that the Holy Spirit will make Jesus more real to us. That Jesus may not just dwell in us, but may dwell richly in us. And this is the aim of the prayer. Now remember, Paul's not praying to non-believers. He's not asking unsaved people to invite Jesus into their hearts so that they might be saved. No, the Ephesians have already done this. They already have Christ dwelling in them. What Paul's praying is that Christ may dwell more richly, more fully, more deeply, more joyfully, more powerfully in their lives, and that Jesus may be more real to them. That's an amazing prayer, isn't it? That Christ may be more real to them. And notice that Paul's not praying what we pray for. I mean, you think about how we pray. Often we pray for our health, for our marriages, for our family, our careers, our finances, and it's all well and good to pray for these things. But a prayer of priority is that Christ may dwell more richly in our hearts. Not only this prayer for ourselves, but for those that we pray for. Because this knowing Christ more fully is a process. When we ask Christ into our hearts when we're saved, we don't experience at that moment all there is to Christ dwelling in us. We grow in our knowledge and our love and experience of Jesus. Think back if you've been following Jesus 10 years or 20 or 30 years. Think back, let's say a decade, do you know Jesus better? Do you know him better now than you did back then? I hope you can say yes, because that's God's will for us, that Christ may dwell more richly in our hearts as we follow him. C.S. Lewis has a very helpful illustration in his book, Mere Christianity, and he writes this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house 
And it, perhaps at first you understand what he's doing because in your house the drains need getting right and there needs to be leaks stopped in the roof and so on. And you knew these jobs needed to be doing, so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. And you think, what on earth has God up to? And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. That he's throwing up a wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up some towers, building courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Wonderful illustration. When we first become Christians, we all we know we need some work. We might be struggling with, with bad language or impure thoughts. We might have a problem with anger. We might have some relationships or some honesty issues we need to sort out. So when we, we first ask Christ in, we, we know that he's going to do some work, and he does. But then he gets a bit carried away. <laughs> and he doesn't just want to make us into a nice cottage. He's, doing, he's got a major renovation because he wants to dwell in each of us more richly, more fully, more wonderfully, more joyfully. And this is what Paul is praying for in this prayer. Heartfelt prayer that you and I, may, who already have Christ in us, may have him dwelling in us more richly. So that's the aim of Paul's prayer. Now, how is this accomplished in verse 17 to, to 19? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Christ dwells in us more richly as the Holy Spirit puts down roots and grounds us in God's love as we look to meditate on God's word, in particular as we ponder the work of Christ on the cross with his love that runs through the darkness of Good Friday to the glory of Resurrection Sunday, as we allow those truths to impact on us, the Holy Spirit will send the love of Christ down into the deepest recesses of our soul. The Spirit opens our eyes of our heart to see the breadth and the depth and the height and the depth and the length of Christ's love for us, that we may know, really know, the love that surpasses all knowledge. And I love this part of the prayer, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that's beyond knowing? I mean, if the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge, how are we ever going to figure it out? This goes back to last week and those verses earlier in Ephesians 3 that talk about the mystery. Even though it's a mystery solved, it's still amazing. And there's still parts that we need to explore and open up. Paul wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And we need God's revelation, his opening up the eyes of our hearts. As we humbly cry to Jesus as our saviour, God's love will penetrate every nook and cranny of our broken and fractured hearts until we are overwhelmed with a sense of God's mercy, overwhelmed so we cannot help but praise and worship Jesus. And this is exactly what's happening to Paul. As he's praying for the Ephesians, he becomes overwhelmed and this praise and this worship wells up within him 
And so again, he interrupts his train of thought. The beginning of Ephesians 3, he interrupted his train of thought to encourage the discouraged Ephesians. Here, he interrupts his train of thought as his heart is overwhelmed with praise and worship to the living God. See how he changes track in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we have the heart of Paul open and laid bare, a heart that that just longs for the Ephesians to know Christ more and a heart that longs to see his heavenly Father worshipped. And I pray we have times like that, that when we're praying for others and then we're so touched by God that we just break out into spontaneous praise and worship like Paul is modelling here. To him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And with this amen, Paul finishes the first half of his letter, chapters 1 through 3. Remember when I introduced this letter, I mentioned that this letter is one of two halves. In the first half, the first three chapters, Paul talks about the glory of the gospel and where we as a church fit in. It's quite theological. He's laying the groundwork. But from chapter 4 through 6, it's all practical. How do you put this into practice? What does it mean to be a worshipping church? What does it mean to be a Christian parent, a Christian spouse? What does it mean? What's spiritual warfare all about? So from, from next time I preach, we'll be getting into the practical implications of all that Paul's talked about so far. But for now, let's finish with some take-homes. What are some practical things that we can do with this wonderful prayer? Two things. First of all, this prayer is a model. Now, it's not the only prayer in the Bible that serves as a model. There are other prayers scattered through the Old and the New Testament that we can use as a model for our prayer. But in the same token that there are other models, we mustn't ignore this prayer. We mustn't settle for prayers that just ask for our daily bread, especially when all prayer is Christ-centred. I mean, God wants us to pray because he wants us to spend time with him. We are busy and easily distracted. And as our Heavenly Father longs for us to spend time in prayer, he draws us. I mean, you may pray for all sorts of reasons, but at the end of the day, it's because our Heavenly Father wants to hang out with you. And he wants Christ to dwell more richly in your hearts. And prayer is one of the key ways this can be done. And so in all our prayers, let us pray that the love of God may dwell more richly in our hearts. I encourage you to add this prayer to your spiritual arsenal, an extra arrow in your prayer quiver. For we realise that we can be moved by a sermon, enlightened by scripture. We can be walking out in the hills and be overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence. But that can be all fleeting and disappear unless we ask God to make it grow down deep, that the Holy Spirit will make the love of Christ more real to us because of what we've read in the Bible, the sermon we've listened to, or that wonderful sense of God's presence out in creation. Make Christ 
dwell in me more richly by your spirit is a prayer that we can pray. And of course we pray this for other people as well. In our devotional times, it's great that we pray for our spouse, our children, our family, colleagues, friends. But one of the things we should be praying for them is that they may know how wide and long and deep and high is the love of Christ for them. That they may know it in their heart of hearts. I know that some people pray when I'm preaching. And while I'm preaching, they're quietly praying that you will have the love of God made more real in your hearts. It's wonderful to have those folk praying for a preacher. And we can pray this prayer afterwards as well. You may have had an opportunity to speak to someone about Jesus. Maybe even shared some scripture verses or two. And so afterwards, what do you pray? You pray that those words will go down deep. They'll take root by the Holy Spirit and that Christ's love will be made alive to them. Just like Paul's praying here for us. So the first take home is that we can use this prayer as a model for our prayers. The second take home is that this prayer is a challenge. Remember at the beginning of this message I described different understandings of the word gospel. The gospel, God's undeserved love to us in such a way that saw Jesus willingly, joyfully go to the cross and die that we might be forgiven. And so I remember those categories. Some people don't understand the gospel but don't really mind. Others are really keen to discover the gospel. Others understand the gospel but they reject it. And others are humbled by the gospel and are following Jesus. Wherever you are on that spectrum, then I challenge you to pray this prayer that Christ may dwell more richly in your lives. Maybe put your prayer, other prayers aside for a day or two and focus on a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, may I not be satisfied until Christ dwells in me more richly. Make Jesus more real to me, just like Paul wanted Jesus to be more real to the Ephesians. Make Christ my Lord and my delight, my joy and my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul had a heart for prayer for the Ephesians and that he prayed that Christ may dwell more richly in them and that the Holy Spirit will send that love down deep and take root and they be grounded in that love with its height and depth and length and breadth. And we pray that prayer for us, Lord. May we be never satisfied until we know Christ more and know that that's becoming more and more real to us and help us, Lord, to share Jesus with others, to pray for them so that Christ will be more real to them as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.